Pastor Mike, uh, that's dealing with topics in our society. Uh, and so we titled this series, Scripture Speaks to Society. So uh, tonight, the message I get a chance to share with you uh, is a message that actually, uh, earlier this year, another church who was doing a similar series to what we're doing at our church, uh, but it happened, it happened during the month of January, they invited me over uh, to speak at their church. And so I uh, took time and studied in December and some months before and prepared a message to speak uh, at a church on the West Shore. And so I shared this message there at the beginning of January. Uh, and Pastor Mike, in light of our series, said, I think it'd be good uh, if you could take that same message uh, that you shared at another church across the shore and share it with our church family as well. And so that's what I'm planning to do tonight is share with you. Now, some of the stories you've probably already heard just because um, I've shared them here at Living Water. Uh, of course, Liberty had not heard those sermons, those, those stories, so I was sharing them with them for the first time. So if you have heard the story before, just forgive me tonight. I ask for some grace. <laughs> As we do that. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, and we'll read one of the texts we're going to be looking at tonight. We're only going to be looking at two texts, Romans 13, and then when you find it, you can stand, if you don't mind, for respect for God and his word, because he's just that great and awesome. <clears throat> so we have a few verses here. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10, and we'll come back to them here and read them again in a moment, but... We find the words written uh, by the Apostle Paul, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Our message tonight is the heart of racial reconciliation. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. <clears throat> Father, we give thanks to you for another opportunity. We first of all praise you for the freedom that you have afforded to us here in the United States of America, where we can gather openly and think about what your word says, read it, mull it over, uh, and hear messages about it that calls us to consider the lives that we're living or the lives that others are living around us and how we should interact with them. <clears throat> we know, Father, that uh, unless your spirit works on our hearts, when I speak about a heart, Lord, I'm, I'm thinking there about that biblical definition, the inward part of us, uh, our will, our, our thoughts, our emotions, Lord, uh, that no one else has access to except for you. And, Lord, we ask that your spirit would work there so that the world around us would see a different person who interacts differently because of how we're related to you and the work of the spirit in us based on the standard of your word as we look toward Jesus. We desire to hear from you tonight, Lord. We desire for you to challenge us tonight, Lord. We desire to be changed by you. Lord, as we work our way through this series, we realize that there, as Pastor Mike said, there are going to be things that we don't agree with, perhaps, that are said. And Pastor Mike challenged us last week. When we run into one of those moments, pray. 
Don't allow anger to be the first response. But consider, why am I feeling that way? Why do I have a resistance to that? Is it true? Is this really what God's word is saying? We need you, Father. We need your spirit to help us so that we can look more like your son. And Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for what you did for us. We praise you. We look forward to your return, and our hearts are turned toward you. We ask these things right now in your son's name, Father. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. <clears throat> really appreciate that. So because uh, some of you have been attending here for a while, and we've preached a variety of sermons over the last 11 years here, uh, some of you know that as a, in my undergraduate years, I spent some time in the state of Oklahoma, specifically Norma, Norman, Oklahoma, as I at that time was attending the University of Oklahoma. And while I was there, one of the jobs that I had a chance to work uh, was at Kinko's, for those who uh, remember Kinko's before it was bought out by FedEx uh, and became FedEx office. Uh, and so I worked there. Uh, and the, the location in which they afforded me, there were two in the town, uh, at least uh, near the college and then one uh, near the main freeway. Uh, I-35 um, was about 2.5 miles from my house, so about two and a half miles from where I lived at in my apartment at the time, which was Rebecca Lane Apartments. And, uh, and I would ride uh, after class up there because I worked the, the second shift uh, from 2.30 to 11 p.m. at night, and that was the shift that I worked while I was at Kinko's. Uh, and it always seemed like whenever I was making that ride home at night, it always felt a lot longer than two and a half miles. Well, on this particular night, after I had finished my shift at 11 and got my things together, so it was probably around uh, 11.15, uh, maybe somewhere around 11.30 in the evening, uh, that I was making my ride back to my apartment to get ready for classes for the next day. Uh, I, as I was thinking back about the experience of it, uh, I, I remember just trying to make it from street light to street light. It, it was quiet. I could just feel the wind rushing past my face. I could hear the bike you know, pedals turning. Uh, because it was so quiet, and then occasionally a car would rush past me uh, in the darkness. And, and, and in those moments, I remember wishing that I could have the speed of one of those cars to get home uh, quickly. Because uh, it usually took me about 15 to 20 minutes to make it home in the dark. And, uh, and on one of the streets, it was extremely dark because there was no street lights going down uh, the entire street of Berry Street to get me back to my apartments, and it was just lonely and dark. So on this particular night, as I was making my way uh, down Main Street, back to get to Berry Street to make that right, <clears throat> a truck pulled up uh, with some college-age students in it, uh, two in the front, two in the back. Uh, it was a dark-colored truck, and, and I, I noticed that they did something different. So I'm on the sidewalk riding, and I looked over and noticed that they were there. They, they pulled up alongside me, uh, and they slowed down to match my speed and pulled over as close as they could to me. And I was trying to figure out what was going on, but I just kept riding, hoping that this was not going to turn into anything, and... The young man in the truck began to yell at me a word that no African-American person wants to hear. Uh, and if that wasn't enough for them, they decided that they wanted to do some other things to kind of show how they felt. Now, this may have been a joke to them, but they took their cigarettes that they had been smoking and they, they hurled them at me. Uh, and after they had hurled those cigarettes at me, they sped off into the night laughing as they headed towards the campus uh, of the school that I attended at the time. 
Now, I, I could tell you that story, and, uh, and I, was, I was glad when I got home that night because I realized that this mild aggression could have been something far worse. So I was very glad that nothing else happened because I was alone and they could have done other things, but I was thankful that they didn't. But as I thought about that story in my life, you know, there are some times where people just do stuff in life, and you can kind of dismiss it as this is just one of those outliers out there in life. But there were other experiences that I've had in my life that began to color my view of the world. For instance, there are times that I have been in a store, and I've noticed that the salesperson, for one reason or another, seemed to be gravitating to the area I was always in. Um, having worked at a job and finding out from a fellow employee who later quit the job because of uh, the jokes that were being told about me uh, because of the color of my skin to other employees who did not look like me, and they felt uncomfortable with that, so they resigned and later shared that information with me. Or having the experience of being in a neighborhood where you thought you were safe uh, as a child and playing outside only to find uh, that one of your neighbors has two very large vicious dogs and releases them out of the backyard to chase you down uh, with no restraint and it is through running and climbing a tree that you barely survive the experience. And by having these types of experiences and going through these types of things in life, they have a way of changing your perspective toward a group of people and shifting you in your view toward fear and distrust. I remember being a teenager when we uh, first moved in my parents' home. We had transitioned from a predominantly all-minority uh, neighborhood to a, uh, a predominantly all-white neighborhood, mostly speaking. Uh, there were probably about 200 homes in the neighborhood at the time when we first moved in, uh, and there were only four minority families. How did I know that? That was just kind of how it worked out, as you noticed as you made your way through the neighborhood who else looked like you or similar or was someone different. And there were four of us, four, four families in the neighborhood. Um, and there was the only one other family whose the mother was Indian. She had just gone through, had, uh, was in the midst of a divorce uh, with her husband and she had a son who was mixed. Her husband was black, she was Indian and they had separated and they had moved to the neighborhood. And so he was a couple of years younger than I and so we kind of connected uh, because both being minorities, young men in the neighborhood, uh, we found some commonality there. So we started to hang out and became friends. And I remember on this one day, we were uh, coming back from hanging out in my house, and I was walking him home. Uh, and we got to the, to the to, he lived about two streets down. We got to his street to turn. He lived in a cul-de-sac uh, at the end of it, right in the center. And as we made it there, we stopped at the stop sign, and I was going to turn back and head home. Uh, and right about then, for whatever reason, he decided to start sharing with me the emotions that he felt about what was going on with his parents and the whole divorce situation. And so trying to be a good friend, I was only a teenager at the time, I thought listening was a good way to handle that, so I started to, to listen. And so we stood outside, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes uh, talking, him talking, sharing what was going on in his life with his parents and the frustration that he felt and the anger that he was going through. And while we were there, uh, a policeman pulled up right to where we were at stopped, rolled down the window, and he asked us, do you live in this neighborhood? And we said we, we both did, and he asked us where we lived at, and we both showed him, and he, he said to us, hey, well, you need to head home. And of course, being young men, uh, teenagers, with an authority figure like a policeman coming in our neighborhood, 
telling us to go home. That's exactly what we did. We parted ways, the conversation ended. He headed to his home, and I headed to mine. Now, that might be okay. That might not seem unusual to you had you not considered what normally happened in our neighborhood. One, police did not patrol our neighborhood. And two, they rarely ever showed up for any reason. What left me to conclude as I was making my way home, the thought started to roll in my mind, why would anyone call the police on us because we were simply talking? What had I done wrong? What had he done wrong? You may think that those kind of experiences don't follow. You find, you find yourself in religious institutions like seminaries. You think, well, this is the place where God's people are. They won't do things like that. But I was reminded this week through a tweet by someone who is a graduate of the same seminary I am, reminded of experience that I knew about, had heard about, of an experience that happened. And this is what she wrote on her tweet. In seminary, a student asked, what contributions do black people make to theology? One of the professors answered, nothing, but boy, they can sing. So we all have stories and experiences which shape our view of other groups of people and the issues that pertain to relating to them. Now, I know to some it may have seemed like we had moved past that part of our distasteful history here in America, the unpleasantness of it and the things that we would like to forget about what brought us to where we are in American history. But this past year, the tensions that arose reminded us that those, if I would describe them along socio, sociological terms, those racial divides run deep and the hostility is real and widespread. And we got a chance to hear that as Verizon voices came forward to decry the disparities that happen in our country along what we consider to be racial lines. So sociologists have taken time to write about this issue and in their book to see how we can respond and in their book, Transcending Racial Barriers, Dr. Michael Emerson and Dr. George Yancey, in reflecting on our society, say we live not necessarily in a racism society, but what they have termed as, and others have referred to as a racialized society. And they believe that this is what contributes to our divisions within our country. And this is what they mean by that when they say racialized as opposed to racism. That is that race, this concept of how we divide ourselves in a group based on certain external features, impacts the experiences that those people have in groups, opportunities, and social relationships. In writing about this in their part of the book, they said this, based on volumes of research, statistics, and studies, U.S. society is racialized in at least the following areas. Health, death, employment, marriage, occupations, life expectancy, crime, personal and social identity, advertising, Names, education, residential neighborhoods, auto loan rates, socioeconomic and spatial mobility, and they listed a number of other things. But I think you get my point. Race matters profoundly 
in America, and we might even say Western culture, we might even say globally. But that's not necessarily what we're here to deal with in that way, to reflect on just simply staying there. The question is, how should Christians move beyond the stories that we've been told from our ethnic or racial groups and communities and the personal experiences that sometimes have a way of becoming a prison that holds us hostage to past experiences so that as believers we take steps to relate to other people as those who have been redeemed by God through Christ? How do we work on healing the wounds that have separated us in society? How do we move toward racial reconciliation? Well, allow me first to draw upon a definition of what I mean by racial reconciliation by using the work of someone who has been in the field working on these things for over 30 years and experienced and her degrees as she lectures in this, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil said this, and she defined it this way, reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. Let me read that again. Reconciliation is the ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all of creation to flourish. So how do we as Christians move in a society that is broken and separated to be able to heal relationships and systems when we know that racial reconciliation is an arduous process? I'm sure for those in the room who have ever taken any effort to engage in this process, to, to work in this field, to see relationships heal, know that racial reconciliation is neither easy nor quick. But I believe Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had the right idea when he said these words. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Now, I don't think he developed that idea on his own. He had studied, had a chance to read the scriptures in detail, and I believe that he came to this conclusion after reflecting on sacred scripture when he considered what God had accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit in human history. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers that it was God who was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And we as humans who have been rebellious against God might wonder why would God seek to reconcile rebellious humans? What would motivate God to do that? Well, the gospel writer John tells us as he quotes that famous verse in John 3.16 that it was love that moved the Father to give the Son. And the Son later on in the same gospel in chapter 15, verse 13, would say it would be out of love what would cause him to lay down his life, to sacrifice his life for his friends and ultimately for sinners. And why does God act this way? Because God's nature is love. Or as John would write later to a church in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, as we've often quoted, God is love. So as we look at this 
problem in our society from a Christian perspective, we realize that at the heart of true racial reconciliation, love is the motivation that moves us in that direction. And so tonight I want to simply show you two internal aspects of love that help us move down the path, this difficult path toward racial reconciliation. The first one we read already, but I'll read it to you again. We find it in Romans chapter 13 as Paul writes these words. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now to understand the gravity of the words that Paul writes, we have to understand the context of the historical potential context in which Paul is writing these words. He's writing these words to a group of believers who seem to have been divided along ethnic lines. If we have our history right, it seems that it's about this time that Paul is writing that Jews who had been uh, removed from the city through, expo through being exposed by the emperor at the time now have returned to a city, uh, which now to a church that they had once known and been having influence and leadership to now a church that is influenced and led by Gentiles and Gentile culture. And as they're seeking to integrate back into the church that they once had known, they found it that it's different. Perhaps the music is different. The way the order of service works is different. It looks more Gentile. And tensions began to rise as each group wants to cling to its cultural understanding of what is the right way to worship God. Today we might call those the worship wars. I have a way of singing. I have a way of doing service. And and if my way of doing things is right, then that necessarily means that yours must be wrong. Whatever kind of music you like, if it doesn't match up with the music I like, then you're not worshiping God rightly. And that's probably most likely some of the conversations. You want to worship on this day. I want to worship on that day. We take these days off and you want to take those days off. And it becomes about what is culturally right and feels good to me is the best way to worship God. And it's into this context that Paul writes the words that we just read. Now, he's first already dealt with this idea that Christians ought to repay their debt, but he uses that analogy of debt to turn to a more profound topic. As he shifts his focus to remind uh, believers who are there who are struggling to relate to one another because of ethnic differences, that there is a debt, not a physical debt, a financial debt, but a spiritual debt that they owe to one another that can never be repaid. Paul says that debt is love. Now, we can look for some textual clues and we realize Paul's focus is not just love within the community of believers, but it is a broader view of love. It is love towards all members of society that he says that we owe to other human beings. And Paul says, let, let me tell you how you're going to make payments on this debt because it's not a matter of exchange of money. But it comes 
when you show the same concern for others that you have for yourself. That's when you make a payment on that debt. Paul paints a picture in which, which we do not do things to harm others. And that's his point. Love has a way of constraining us. That's my first point. Love constrains us. It keeps us from doing wrong to others. And when we live by the law of love, then we display to the world what the Mosaic law was intending to produce in the life of the Israelite now is produced in the life of the believer because of faith in Christ and obedience to the law of Christ, which is love. In practice, love moves us to control our speech toward others who are different than us. Because of love, we choose not to use words that incite or degrade others. Love keeps us from relating to others based on negative stereotypes. We will not simply dismiss a person if we're in the hiring process because their name indicates an ethnicity group that we might not feel favorable toward or racial group. Love holds us back from communicating false things about one another or others because they're, they look different than us or have a different culture than us. Love restrains us from the impulse to use our influence in situations where we can maneuver things so that they only benefit us or our group and disadvantage others. Love certainly keeps us from doing bodily harm towards others out of hate. And love empowers us to restrain the desire for vengeance towards others when we've been treated wrongly. Paul says love constrains us. Five years ago, Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel African American Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina. Five years ago in January, he opened fire and murdered nine people with the intent, as later came out, to start a race war. 48 hours after the event of losing mothers and sisters and sons and husbands and wives, their loved ones appeared in court for his arraignment and his bond hearing. And what transpired there in that courtroom was unplanned as well as unanticipated. It was the first time that these members of the family had a chance to look eye to eye with the man who had inflicted such pain in their lives as he had robbed them from years that they probably would have had with their loved ones because he had an agenda. And the judge, they, they decided to open the floor to allow those who had been in, uh, suffering with such pain that he had inflicted upon them the opportunity to speak from their heart to let him know the pain that he had caused in their lives. First up was a lady by the name of Nadine Collier. Her mother, Ethel Lance, was one of the ladies who had been murdered in that Bible study. But the words that she said, no one could have guessed. These were the words that rolled from her lips as she approached the microphone. I forgive you. You took something really precious to me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. 
and have mercy on your soul. Nadine uttered those words while she held back tears in a shaking voice. That wasn't the plan. No one expected it. Forgiving Ruth was not part of what anyone had gotten together and organized. It wasn't premeditated. It just happened. Not everybody was able to forgive him, but several other families followed suit and said the same thing that they forgave him. And because of the action of what happened in that courtroom, the opposite effect happened in that community. Instead of the groups along racial lines dividing and being separated, they grieved the loss of what had happened and saw it as a tragedy and pulled together. And what was meant to tear people apart because of forgiveness became an opportunity that brought people together. Because Paul says, when we act in love, Love has a way of, despite the horrors that we experience in life, it holds us. It constrains us. But not only does love constrain us, it has another aspect as well that we want to look at briefly. We find it in 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. We'll go there. It's John 3.16 as well, just in 1 John chapter 3. We find these words, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But, but if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, we live in a world in which there are varieties of definitions of love. Disney has a definition of love. Uh, your, your local neighborhood, your magazine has a definition of love. TV personalities give us definition of love. But Paul's, the, I'm sorry, the Apostle John wants to speak into a world that wants to define love in all kinds of ways and says to the Christian community, listen, listen. Don't allow these outside things to define what love looks like for you. Come, come, sit at my feet. Let me tell you how God wants you to define love. And he simply says to us, Christ's death on our behalf defines what it means to love others. And God's expectation is that we imitate Christ. And so the death of Jesus bids us love others in the same way that Jesus has loved us. Now, does that mean that you are to go out from this building tonight to find someone who's in great need and to put your life in the place and somebody take your life? Is that what John means in this context? Well, thankfully, he defines it for us. He says in these verses, he interprets what he means by how we're to live this out in a daily way. And similar to what Paul said, to, to let your life be a, a living sacrifice. John says to us, the way that you're to do this is to take the stuff of this life to meet the needs of others. And when we do that, we imitate the sacrificial love of Jesus. We show them what Jesus did for them on the cross. 
But John goes to give, go on to give us a warning. He says, however, if we know the needs of others and we close ourselves off emotionally so that we don't have to have concern for what they're going through, then John says that the love that we have received from God in Christ by the Spirit has not yet had its proper influence in our life as it ought. Because the love that you receive from God ought to so affect you that it ought to push you in a direction of caring about the needs for others because Jesus cared about your needs. And he ends the section by simply saying, listen, brothers and sisters, love is not mainly expressed in words. It's expressed in actions. Here's the point. Not only does love constrain us, but love compels us. That's my second point. Love compels us. See, the tremendous love of God that has been expressed to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that has given us the forgiveness of sins, by which we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise that we will be saved from the wrath of God that will come upon the whole world, should move us to a point that love pours out of our heart as we're concerned about the welfare of others, especially those who are different than us. So what does that look like? It means at times love will compel us to listen to others even if we don't agree with them. When we have a chance to work towards solution, we will look for win-win outcomes instead of win-lose scenarios. It means that we will show concern what might be affecting another group of people or what's going on in life, even when I'm not affected by it or impacted. It means when I have a chance that the stuff of this life that God has allowed me to get my hands on, because as God has said, it is he who gives us the power to get wealth that will use it for their benefit. Sometimes it means looking at reality from a different perspective than the one I've grown up with. Because love requires action on my part. And love ultimately, because what we see in the cross of Christ, it will move me towards forgiveness, repentance, and justice. Now, I'll share this story with the church before. I'll just remind you of it. The last time I talked about this, uh, about a year ago, and it was about a fascinating story that I came across by the man, of a name, a man by the name of Daryl Davis. At the time, I share with you that he was a musician who had this interesting hobby of engaging those who were in the Ku Klux Klan, himself being an African-American or uh, African-American man. And uh, for the, he's been doing this for the past 30 years. And that's his hobby of what he does. Uh, and, and, and he talked about this, about how the chance he had a chance through music and dinner to influence and get into relationships with those. And through those conversations at dinner, their views over time changed. And he has done this, and it seems like uh, approximately through the 30 years, about 200 Klansmen have given up their robes, which he keeps in his closet to, to remind him of that, that his loving outreach to others has a real impact in society. And in this context of an interview, I'm just going to quote one small part of it that reminds us of something. He said this, if you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, it doesn't have to be about race. It could be about anything you will find that you both have something in common as you build upon those commonalities. And in you doing that, you will form a relationship. And as you go about building that relationship, you will form a friendship. 
And that's what would happen. I didn't convert anybody. They saw the light and they converted themselves. Love compelled him to engage with those who otherwise would hate him. And through loving them, that hate changed and became friendship. And when that hate changed and it became friendship, their view of the world changed. And when their view of the world changed, they let go of old views and old ways of relating to people and changed their life and gave up the symbols of what it meant to live a life of hate and turn to people of friendship. But similar to Daryl Davis, a change that was brought about in my own life as I started off telling you about where I was at because of personal experiences that I had had, that I, my view had been shifted towards fear and distrust, and God changed my perspective. One of the things that God used in my life to begin to open a door, this was an experience that I had in seminary. I told you about one of the negative ones, but let me tell you about one of the positive ones that God used in my life to begin to, to open the door for me to see things differently. So I was in seminary, and I was one of my classmates. He had served on the mission field. And he had come back to the States because he was going to pursue his master's degree in seminary, then go back to the mission field after he had finished with his master's degree because he had come to study missiology. And that was part of his, his uh, goals there at the time. And so while he was there and we were engaging in conversation, he was sharing with me some of the stories, uh, if I remember the, the, the conversation correctly, about what had happened on the mission field where he had been living and things he had done, and I was fascinated by this. Uh, and while we were in the middle of the conversation, of course, it was around lunchtime that we were having this conversation, so I had a drink with me, and I'm drinking my drink as he's talking. And, uh, and in the middle of the conversation, he stops because he's thirsty, and he says to me, hey, do you mind if I have some of your drink? Now, I'm going to let you into my inward world. On my inward world, now this is pre-COVID, right? This pre-COVID, different world. My initial reaction was, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Brother, don't you realize you're white and I'm black? You want to put your lips on my, I mean, like, you really do that? That was shocking to me. Outwardly, what I did was I nervously said to him, hey, brother, how about I just buy you something to drink? That's what was going on. You know how we have those two worlds going on in our lives if we're honest about it. And he said, no, I don't need anything to drink from the machine. I just, I just need a little bit of what you have right there, your drink. <laughs> Reluctantly, I, I, I passed the drink over. And I sat in shock as he drank from the same bottle that I drank from. Now, we're not going to talk about germs. But the reality of what was happening was shocking to me. And it was shattering some of my perception about those who I feared and distrusted. And God was beginning to say, it's not all of what you experience. And he opened the door. Later in seminary, I met this young lady. She was from this Caribbean island called Puerto Rico that I had never been to and had paid little attention to. She came into my life, and she was a very attractive, intelligent young lady and carried herself in a godly way, and I just was blown away. I just hadn't met a girl like that before. And she, uh, she came into my life, and God worked things out, and we got into a relationship, and, I, and the Lord was so fortunate and blessed to have mercy upon me and, uh, and loved me and married me. And as we got into a relationship, 
and, and, I, and I got the chance to just share what I was thinking at different times in my life, she began to push back on some of the views I had grown up with. And she began to challenge me because she wouldn't let me get away with ways I was thinking inside when it didn't line up with what Scripture said. And God began to expand my view. If God opened the door with Scott and if God expanded my view with Katya, then God just knocked down the house when he brought me to living water. It was here at Living Water Community Church that I had the chance to experience genuine friendship and love from those who look different than me. And the story, the narrative that I had heard growing up, the experiences that I had, there was another side to the story that I had never known or experienced. But God, because of his great love for his son and for those who are attached to his son, would not allow me to be identified with his son and remain in a faulty view of the world a distorted way of seeing others. God pushed back and said, there's more to the story than the pain you've experienced in life. Not everyone is that way. And although I had grown up with fear and distrust and uh, scaredness to move within outside the walls of my ethnic community because I did not trust other groups who looked different than me, through years of serving and being a part of Living Water Community Church, God showed me that our faith in Jesus Christ is greater than the things that separate us. And the love that I experienced in very tangible ways helped me to begin to see my view of the world differently. And so today I don't have the same distrust and fear that I once lived my life and operated by. Does it mean that I don't fear some things that go on in society? I still fear them. I still know there are bad things out there. I do know that there are people who don't like me because of the color of my skin but they're not the only ones in society. There are others. Perhaps today you, your view needs adjusting. I, I'm not sure in what direction it might need adjusting. But God wants to do that for you because he cares about you. He loves you. You belong to his son. And though he accepted you like you were, he doesn't want to leave you that way. He wants to conform you to the image of his son. And if this is an area that you find yourself struggling in, the Lord is listening. He knows. And he's ready to act and work in your life to bring about a change. All you have to do is ask him. If we're ever going to get to a place of true reconciliation in society, it must begin with an inward change in our hearts where love is what motivates us. So that in some times when we need it, it will constrain us, and in other times, it will compel us. Love is the key to true racial reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you that you have shown us the way through Jesus. How do you take those who are hostile and bring them together when there's so much hate?
It is through love. Exactly what we've seen in the cross of Christ. Lord, you define for us what love means. We had our views about it. They're lacking. They're distorted. They don't rightly represent, represent what it means to love another human being. But you came and you put love on display in the greatest way through your son. Lord Jesus, you showed us what it meant to love another in the way that God has loved us when you willingly gave up your life for us to bring glory to your Father and to rescue us from a future of being separated from God. We thank you. We appreciate you. Lord, the things that I'm talking about tonight, I, I realize they're, they're neither easy nor quickly resolved, that the path is often fraught with difficulties as we seek to, to discuss our ways and feelings about and things we become accustomed to for how the world fits our view of it, to shift to how you would want us to view it. That can be uncomfortable at times. It may mean giving up certain ways of thinking and speaking and, and engaging with others. But because we love you, but because we care about what your word says, because we care about what you're doing in the world, don't let us stay like we are. Changes. You're able to take the fear and distrust and bring acceptance and love and loyalty and friendship. You're able to bring a garden out of a desert. We ask you, Lord, work in our hearts if there's work that needs to be done. We realize it's not a quick process. We understand that you're going to work on it over time. It doesn't mean that we deny the sin that we see in the world. We don't call wrong wrong when somebody does it. But we take a heart position, Lord, towards caring for others. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen. Would you stand with us? One final song, and then we'll dismiss you here in just a brief moment. Come, brother, sin.